Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be together on this cloudy Austin late summer morning and good to be with all of you online. Thank you for being here. Um, today, I thought I would sort of riff off of the talk that Flint gave last week. And if you weren't able to see it, it's online on the Appamata YouTube channel. And the name of the talk was Holding the Center, and it was about, um, you know, in times of change and tumult, which we're living in, um, how do we how do we move with that? And how do we keep coming back? How do we stay constant? And so um, I thought I would actually read a short bit from um, his teacher's book, um, Zenke Blanche Hartman, Seeds for a Boundless Life. And first I want to um, remind us of a couple of biographical things about her because um, she was such an ordinary person. Um, she was born in 1926 and she died in 2016. And she practiced in the lineage of Shinru Suzuki Roshi. And she served two terms as co-abbess of the San Francisco Zen Center, which is important because she was the first woman to assume that leadership position. Um, she was especially known for her expertise in the ancient ritual of sewing acacia or rakasu, um, which um, Anne has especially led here at our um, own Zendo. Uh, Hartman was also known for her attention to issues facing women, and she and her late husband, Lou Hartman, had four children, eight grandchildren, and a number of great-grandchildren. She was born in Birmingham, Alabama, to non-practicing Jewish parents. She went to Catholic school. She studied biochemistry and chemistry at the University of California. She worked as a chemist, but by 1968, she began questioning the direction of her life. She and her husband began sitting regularly at the Berkeley Zen Center in Berkeley, California. And in 1969 and in 1972, the two of them entered the Tassajara Zen Mountain Center. And um, Lou died in 2011. And Blanche is considered fundamental to the spread of devo devotional sewing practice throughout North America. She and Lou were both ordained as priests by Zentatsu Richard Baker in 1977. Blanche's name, Zenkai, means inconceivable joy. In 1988, she received Shiho or Dharma transmission from Sojin Mel Weitzman, who died just a couple of years ago. And In 1992, she led an all-female practice period at Rinso-in, Suzuki Roshi's home temple. This was the first time in the 500-year history of the temple 
that women have conducted a training period there. So though she was ordinary in some ways, um, she was obviously quite a force. So before I share this talk of hers called Gladdening the Mind, um, I wanted to first um, read a poem. And so one of the things that I, I took some notes from Flint's talk and the, one, the note that really resonated with me is, um, you know, our, our work is to practice until we and our friends are free. And so this poem by Marie Howe, I think really captures that. It's called um, After the Movie. My friend Michael and I are walking home arguing about the movie. He says that he believes a person can love someone and still be able to murder that person. <laughs> I say, I say, no, that's not love. That's attachment. Michael says, no, that's love. You can love someone, then come to a day when you're forced to think it's him or me, think me and kill him. I say, then it's not love anymore. Michael says, it was love up to then though. I say, maybe we mean different things by the same word. Michael says, humans are complicated. Love can exist even in the murderous heart. I say that what he might mean by love is desire. Love is not a feeling, I say. And Michael says, then what is it? We're walking along West 16th, 16th Street, a clear, unclouded night, and I hear my voice repeating what I used to say to my husband. Love is action, I used to say to him. Simone Wheel says that when you really love, you are able to look at someone you want to eat and not eat them. Janice Joplin says, take another little piece of my heart now, baby. Meister Eckhart says that as long as we love images, we are doomed to live in purgatory. Michael and I stand on the corner of Sixth Avenue saying goodnight. I can't drink enough of the tangerine spritzer I've just bought. Again and again, I bring the cold, bring the cold can to my mouth and suck the stuff from the hole the flip top made. What are you doing tomorrow? Michael says. But what I think he's saying is, you are too strict. You are a nun. Then I think, do I love Michael enough to allow him to think these things of me, even if he's not thinking them? Above Manhattan, the moon wanes and the sky turns clearer and colder. Although the days after the solstice have started to lengthen, we both know the winter has only begun. And so thinking about practicing until we and our friends are free. Gladdening the Mind by Zenke Blanche Hartman. And I've taken the, um, I've edited a bit to get to the point. So she says, I will speak about right effort, which is one of the steps on the noble eightfold path. But first I'd like to share with you a wonderful metaphor that many of you have heard that occurs in the Avatma Saka Sutra, the Flower Garland Sutra. The image is that of Indra's net in which the whole universe is depicted as a vast net. And at each crossing, 
of the threads of the net, there is a jewel. And at each jewel, and each jewel is reflected in every other jewel. And every other jewel is reflected in each jewel. So this metaphor for the vast interconnectedness of all beings is also a metaphor for dependent co-arising. The idea that we arise in response to all of the causes and conditions of each moment. We arise fresh in each moment in response to the causes and conditions, which is why we say each being is empty of some separate continuous entity. There is no fixedness to us. We are continually responding to the connectedness that exists among all of us. Each of us affects everyone and everyone affects each of us. So building these bonds of Sangha are an important part of who we come to be after practicing with each other. Those we practice with influence us and they are influenced by us. And of course, we've seen that so much. Um, I think it's precious that she points that out. She goes on to say, I think it's really beneficial for us to recognize each time we encounter another being that we are already connected just by being alive. We're all living one life in some way. That sense of the vast interconnectedness that exists among all of us has a very important influence on how we live our life. We recognize that every action that we take has an effect on our life and the lives of those around us. And so we become more awake to the actions we take, the actions of body, speech, and mind. The sixth part of the Noble Eightfold Path is called right effort or wise effort or perfect effort. Right effort, she defines as relinquishing unwholesome states of mind. And then she says, I think many of us don't realize how continuously our mind is making stories until we sit still with the intention of just observing it. So as we sit, we become familiar with the states of mind that arise and notice if they are unwholesome. Unwholesome to me just means that they lead to suffering. And I would say in my very less high language, unwholesome means to me suckiness. As we observe our mind, we have a choice whether to feed a thought and embellish it and let it grow into a whole story or when we see it arising to say, oh, been there, done that, takes me to a hell realm. I don't think I wanna go there. We can relinquish that thought. Now that's easier said than done, of course. Some thoughts are very persistent and our favorites and sort of define who we think we are. We're reluctant to let them go, but if they lead us to suffering or if they lead us to harmful actions, what is the intelligent thing to do? will not go there. So when we notice an unwholesome thought, when we notice a thought that leads to suffering, we see if we can spot it when it first begins. When it first begins, it doesn't have a lot of momentum behind it. And if you don't feed it, it's not so hard to let it go. The Buddha said that there are three roots of suffering. These three poisons that are spoken of in the Dharma, 
greed and grasping, hatred or aversion, and delusion or confusion. The biggest delusion being that I exist as a separate entity. What the Buddha discovered when he began to examine reality was impermanence and not self and dukkha or unsatisfactoriness. So our effort is not to give a home to thoughts that are tainted by these three poisons of grasping, aversion, and delusion. In addition, however, there is relinquishing thoughts that are harmful, thoughts that cause suffering, thoughts that make us miserable. She says, I find humor is extremely helpful in my practice. That was a real discovery to me. I didn't realize that I was making myself miserable with my thinking. It completely escaped my notice until one day when I was in Sashin at Green Gulch and was on my way to the Zendo, I passed a pond that is right next to the Zendo. It was early twilight of morning, which is a time that I'm very fond of. The mist was rising from the pond and there was a great blue heron on the shore and it was a beautiful morning as sometimes happens at Green Gulch. I went on into the Zendo feeling really, really good. And a little while later, I was feeling really, really bad. And I thought, wait, nothing has happened. I have just been sitting here. I have just been thinking. I did it all myself. Now, how did I do that? I had been telling myself an old story. I thought, whoa, wait a minute. I don't want to go there anymore. If I did it myself, then I'm going to stop doing it. And as, as I continued sitting, pretty soon that thought came up again. And I went, oh, I don't want to get on that train. That train takes me to misery. You can use whatever metaphor comes up for you that will help you spot an unskillful thought and drop it. I had an image once of myself moving a piano and putting it down on my foot. <clears throat> Well, if you don't want the piano on your foot, don't put it there. Find whatever kind of image will help you laugh at yourself a bit instead of castigating yourself for having such thoughts. I noticed somewhere in the early years of my practice that my big effort was to get people to love me. I really wanted people to love me. And what I discovered in practice was that it really didn't matter what other people thought. The one whose love and appreciation and approval I wanted was right here. I wanted approval from here and I wouldn't give it to myself. What I found out was that no matter how much approval I got from outside, it didn't count if I was not able to appreciate myself and be willing to be who I am. Whatever this is, it has become this over an accumulation of the actions of body, speech, and mind of more than 80 years, her age when she wrote this. She says, it's my creation in a way, meaning her life, who she is. And it's really helpful if I acknowledge it and befriend this being that I have created with the help of all of the beings with whom I have shared my life, many of you. It's also helpful when we give our appreciation to others, which is why I find that the cultivation of right effort is the cultivation of wholesome states of mind. And for me, the most wholesome states of mind that I have discovered have been gratitude 
and love. That is Zenke Blanche Hartman. And so we'll take a few minutes. Um, I would say 12 to 13 minutes. Um, if you could set up small groups, Nancy, and I can't quite see you on the screen. So um, yeah, let me know if there's any problem with that. And when we go into small groups, we're simply going to um, take a moment to connect um, silently with yourself to just think about, um, you know, what's your own sort of recurring thought or story that either happens on the cushion or in traffic or at work or at home or, you know, in any relationship. It doesn't need to be something that you share um, the specifics of, but you can. Um, I know I find it's always helpful to hear about other stories so that I realize that my stories aren't so wacko um, because my stories are kind of similar to everyone else's stories as it turns out. And then um, after spending a minute or so that way, um, each person will have three minutes to share something about their unhelpful thought. And it could be the actual unhelpful thought, the thought that causes suffering um, to oneself or others, or it could be um, maybe playing with the metaphor that she suggested. Um, she talked about um, you know picking up the piano and dropping it on your foot and deciding, no, I'm not going to do that. She also references a train um, you know, I'm not getting on that train. And I remember um, years ago, Peg referenced, um, do you really want to watch that movie again? <laughs> she she uh, motioned pulling out a DVD because it was that period of like, do you want to take that movie down again? Uh, to which I said, oh, you mean the Demi Moore movies? Um, and that you would have to be me to totally understand. Um, and then, um, so three minutes each for that, groups of three, and then you'll have just a few minutes to um, talk together about um, you know, what you further observed. Um, keeping in mind um, during the single person time, uh, no crosstalk and um, knowing that we will um, keep confidentiality within your small group and this larger group as well. Um, and then in the order, so that you don't have to spend a lot of time talking about order, um, I love um, offering our elders the opportunity to go first. And so uh, just figure out your age order and allow the oldest person to go first and down from there. Um, I'm curious in our remaining few minutes to hear from you, you, um, any interesting observations, any ahas, um, any humorous metaphors, um, anything that you'd like to share um, from yourself or from your group? Joel? Uh, I knew that it was going to be a challenge if we put, if we ended up with three white-haired people in the group to figure out, uh, and that there was a pretty good chance that might happen, and in fact it did. Uh, but I, I wanted to say that that all of us spoke of the you know how to not got, get on a train 
that started rolling when we were little kids. How that is still alive for all of us. And that the and that the antidotes for all of us have to do with being open to change and grateful for the other people around us. And and to and to recognizing that the other people that we are interacting with are not our story. And that the, you know, the story may keep wanting to tug at us, but that we don't have to act it out every time. That was it. Thank you, Joel. Anyone here want to share? You guys were really wise. I think a lot of us talk here talked about the the um, desire to be right. Um, how how that's really a story for us, needing to be have the right answer or the right belief or the right thought. So just listen to what's left. Hey there, could could you guys mute please? Or Nancy, could you mute everyone? There's not speaking. Thank you. Um, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, just that was that was heartening to me because it's a big one for me, and to know that it's shared is um is great. <laughs> and to to know that um, there are lots of people working on that and. I can get wisdom from lots of other people because I did feel like everybody here, it was this little three minutes of teaching. It was great. Anyone in the Zoom club? Kathy, you, did, you unmuted yourself. Did you want to speak? How did you <laughs> you noticed? <laughs> I did. Thank you. <laughs> um, yes, actually, uh, someone in our in our group, uh, instead of a train, she said, uh, "Don't pull the scab," mm -hmm. and that really was a visual for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sometimes that's how it feels. Um, but I did want to share. <laughs> as I did with them, someone, uh, a cousin sent me a picture of myself the other day. And it was one where I was three. And I was not only sitting up in the chair as though I was reaching out, but the expression and the ringlets and the bow in the hair. <laughs> and it was as though I was so excited with whatever was going to come up in my life. Mm -hmm. And it was such a good example of, and someone said in the meeting, um, coming into the world, and that's what we come in as. And I could still see it in that three-year-old. And then all of this other stuff comes later. So, so I'm using it with meditation in the morning. And I'm having her sit there with me. Mm -hmm. Thank you. 
Thank you, Kathy. Genevieve. Hi. Hi. Um, I found myself. I went straight to an emotion, which is fear, and then I found myself all con confounded by: is the fear caused by a thought? Is the thought caused by the fear? What is the thought? You know, I, I, is there a secondary emotion? Is the first emotion hurt? Like it was just very interesting to try and tease it out and not understand where the where the fear came from or what stories it might be making me create um this but i think i mean, i think the story one of them is uh that i can't do stuff that i can't do adulting stuff um and uh the other thing that came up in our group which was interesting was this notion of why why does a specific interaction or event keep coming back does that mean there's something in it that we still need to learn from it or that we're still processing from it or is it that we've attached a story to it that makes it keep coming back so that's what i have to share mm, thank you Jeanette. i'll add on to that because that relates to what i said mm -hmm. here this i had a I spoke about an incident that I keep replaying in my mind. I mean, it's it happened, you know, six months ago. I keep replaying it. And today for the first time, I, and I kept wondering, what's the story that's going along with it, right? Why do I just, it just pops into my mind. I immersed myself in it. And I realized finally today for the first time, the story was, I need to be shown that I'm right. <laughs> I need, it needs to be acknowledged that I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's the thing I need to let go of. And so now we'll see. I will do my best to let go of that. Yeah. And you know, <laughs> hopefully this incident won't be revisiting me. But um, that was my experience. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, yeah. Susan. Um, I think it's about time for us to wind up. I wanted to share two things. One, earlier, um, for those of you on Zoom, um, you may have met Olivia, who lives in New Mexico. Well, she was actually here in the Zendo <laughs> with a friend of hers. They sat earlier this morning, so I don't know if you spotted her. She was sitting in a chair across the room. So um, I wanted to share that for people who have seen Olivia online. She is in town. Um, and secondly, um, I think the other thing completely left my mind. Oh, no, it is that someone in my group, um, all of whom were amazing, um, said something that really resonated with me. It was so specific. And it was, I notice that I just like, I'm gonna add on to it a little bit how I experience it. Every pore in my body just wants to get this thought that's in my head into the other person's head. <laughs> and that was so specific. I just laughed out loud. And I hope that person that you all know when I laugh, that means I'm going, oh, man, I so feel you. I'm not laughing at you. We are laughing together. Um, so um, I'm glad that this practice seems like it was fruitful. Um, 
The book again is Seeds for a Boundless Life, Zen Teachings from the Heart, Zen K. Blanche Hartman. Um, and um, she was a Flint Sparks teacher until um, she passed in 2016. The poem I read, if you're curious, is by Marie Howe, and it's called After the Movie, and you can find it online. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>